Hello and welcome to the Language Connection podcast, a podcast about ideas relevant to our English student community here in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. I'm Luke Malkin and in episode 8 of the podcast we'll listen in on part 2 of my conversation with Ed Lewis Smith about the future of energy production and the intricacies of the climate crisis. Part one of this conversation is covered in episode seven, where Ed introduces what fusion power is and what its capabilities are. So take a listen to that episode before this one so you're up to speed or just dive in here. So let's let's continue there then. So you work in fusion. Fusion is your is your bag. It's your it's your yeah, it's, it's my entire bag. So I used to I used to do other things. I used to look after what are called research infrastructure. So you may have heard of CERN, the huge particle accelerator in Switzerland that fires protons at other protons and sees the very essence of, of atomic matter. I used to look after these on behalf of the government. So that basically means telling ministers how much stuff costs, whether something's going wrong, who we think should run it these kind of things. But there's so much going on in the UK on fusion that I am now concentrating solely on the UK's domestic fusion research programs. So it's a growing industry, but it's not the only one within the energy sector. You talked about your, your colleagues in, uh, in nuclear. Is nuclear also yeah. still growing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if we are to decarbonize energy generation and do it at the pace that we need to to stop, well, to, to slow climate change, we're going to have to use more nuclear power because the technology that you'd use to store energy from wind or solar, which we're obviously increasing a lot of, that isn't developed enough to cope with the, the fluctuations in energy demand. So you need that base load energy provider. And if you're not going to burn coal or gas, you're, you're going to need it to do it with nuclear. Now, the, the, the question, therefore, is how much are you going to spend on nuclear, which once you've built a nuclear power plant, you expect it to last about 40, maybe 50 years to justify its enormous cost because these things are still hugely expensive but they're very powerful so the new nuclear power station being built in the uk in somerset in the southwest of england i don't know i think 20 billion but the thing is going to provide nearly eight percent of the whole country's energy for a long time but that's a lot of money and a long commitment the question therefore is is this the right commitment to make given that we are coming up with new technologies to be more smart about energy we are hopefully in 20, 30 years time going to achieve fusion power stations. So that's the choice for government. But when you're faced with the climate crisis, you know, you have to make these decisions with an imperfect amount of information. So what's the problem with wind and solar? Uh, so in the UK, it's, it, well, not so much solar, because right, like today, sometimes the UK is very, very cloudy and very, very rainy, but it's very windy. Um, and so the UK has a lot of wind and actually a lot of water around it. So if we can harness that, we probably don't need fusion. We, I mean, again, as I said, that, that baseload energy, but in the long term, if we've cracked energy storage, battery technology, things like that, we might be all right with renewables by the end of the century. But there are plenty of countries and, and places in the world that don't have that option. So Singapore, Hong Kong, India, um, densely populated places where there isn't a lot of wind or a lot of space to put solar panels. Uh, and actually, the, the challenges around harnessing water is that you have often involved a lot of environmental damage because you've got to put dams in or change the coastline, which is not good either. So, again, fusion is not necessarily, we're not developing this to save the UK, but there will be some places in the world that, 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 will, be hugely, that will hugely benefit from it. So what's the name for fusion and nuclear? I mean, it's not technically, it's not non-renewable and it's not technically renewable either. It's something different. <laughs> It's something different. Um, the way we conceptualize it is 
Nuclear fusion is the process that happens in the sun, the scientific process. Fusion energy is what we're trying to create. It has its own label then. It's not, it's we're gonna, like yeah, renewable, yeah. <laughs> renewable. It's fusion. I say so, so it does. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm sitting here in a hot country, Bolivia, okay. where yeah. the sun shines 10 out of 12 months minimum. Mm-hmm. Should Bolivia be considering solar? How much of the jungle do you want to chop down to put enough solar panels to power the country? A lot of it has already been cut down. Which is a huge problem, which contributes to climate change as well as, as, well as environmental degradation. So that so, is not a good idea. So no, I'm not suggesting that we turn no. these spaces into solar fields. It's probably better just to replant trees there. But yeah, within the uh, city it, yeah. itself... Uh, within yeah, you can put itself, solar panels on, 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 the, on, on, on buildings. They're getting more efficient. So that, that absolutely is a sensible use of space and of resource. Um, but I don't know what the population increases like in Bolivia. I mean, I presume there's a growing demand for energy that is in most parts of the world. Yeah. So is that, is that approach sustainable? I mean, I don't know what the current, how, how does Bolivia currently get its energy? A lot of it is gas. Gas, okay. But yeah. I think everyone I talk to who works in the gas center, we have some of our students, maybe they're even listening, um, who work in, in the gas sector. They say that it's, it can't, survive it's not sustainable it's fine for now the immediate present but it's yeah. running out and we're looking in more and more remote places to find oil and gas wells that are just more difficult because we found we've used the easy oil it's now trying to find yeah. difficult sites and sites are more exploratory than they were before to find yeah. these reserves that may or may not actually be there or may or may not be yeah. worth building i mean even wells. if they are there are they sustainable from what I hear, I'm no expert. I'm an English teacher, right? I'm not, I don't work in your <laughs> sector. But from what I hear, it's becoming less and less yeah. viable as a, as, a, as a method. Yeah. So I think that what's really interesting, and it happened to the UK in the end of the 20th century, is how you define viable. So we used to produce an awful lot of energy from coal. And burning coal kept millions, I think, at one point in work. And the end of the British coal industry, which was partly because of politics and, and industrial change, but also because we'd found North Sea oil. So an awful amount of oil was found in the North Sea in the late 60s, which meant that we didn't need to burn so much coal because we could burn oil instead. Uh, and that was a lot more efficient and cheaper. Uh, meant that we'd move from coal to oil. But that was a huge industrial kind of uh, process uh, that took place over many years. And there was lots of politics involved because actually the government previous governments had delayed that phasing out of coal because of the amount of, of unemployment it would create. So I guess what Bolivia is going to have to face up to is it's not just about what's right for the planet and the environment, but what will actually be the impact of energy change on, on employment levels in the country. And that is going to affect uh, government's decision. On the, on the other side of that, green and renewable energy does create jobs, but perhaps it doesn't create the, if it's naturally going to be more efficient than it was, fewer people are needed. Potentially, yes. But you're right, it will create jobs. But as I think with the you know, new sectors, particularly in IT and technology, the onus is always going to be on, uh, sorry, not the onus, but the, 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 a lot of the reward is going to be where for the country that develops the technology first and then can sell it to the world. So a lot of the jobs that have developed out of, the, uh, of IT, that most the kind of the highest end jobs in IT remain in Silicon Valley in California. And whereas, whereas jobs in the fossil fuel industry are, can, are easier to share around the world because no one controls the intellectual property around how to burn coal or, or oil or gas. It's pretty basic. Whereas interesting. advanced forms of energy technology and fusion is one. 
that is that's going to be expensive for some countries to develop themselves so they're going to have to buy it off other people and this is actually part of the thinking of the uk in that we've spent billions i think it is billions in for scientific research now rightly the government says we are, are we going to get some return for that so well if we build a thing we can then sell it and, and you know make a profit for the country on that and that's what any other country would do but that therefore means well the, plenty of countries haven't made that investment over decades into these into technologies so it, it's you know can't just generate green jobs at the flick of a switch so to speak it's it's going to be driven by countries that have invested this for a long time it might change because we are talking about a long time but actually a lot of countries are now waking up to this challenge so for bolivia you're going to have to get on it fast even china now is saying that they are going to go net zero so stop producing carbon emissions by 2060 which is trying to do that which is big but for trying to do that they need to they are going to have to get a move on 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 green technologies but if china say they're going to get a move on they probably are so that needs to be a wake-up call for the rest of the world that isn't already thinking about this it's china aren't a country that make empty promises a lot um with that kind of thing it's like if that's if that's something they want to do that's something they're really considering and, and I guess that leads into the, my next question. How can the UK really protect its technology around this? If it wants to get a profit on the event that it's invested, if it's got a bit of a head start on these, on these um, technologies at the moment, yes. how, can it, how can it realistically keep that and not have it just stolen by another country? So in short, that's my job. Okay. Um, <laughs> so how government does that? Well, we work with the organisations that are looking at this to, to you know, to collaborate around the world, but to protect those areas that are based on UK-owned technology or expertise. You know, as we've seen, uh, industrial espionage, uh, hacking, all these things are risks, um, and we know about that. Uh, and that's why we have cybersecurity and security generally. This is a sort of not a new problem, but it just requires countries as the UK to be serious about. And so how much of the energy sector in general is, yes, looking at these new ways that are exciting and, and, and bringing in other ways of us harnessing energy that's around us so we can use it for our own personal needs. And how much is, of it is we need to be responsible with the amount of energy that we do use so we, can, we don't have to have yeah. that massive demand? That's a, that's a really good question. And I think a lot of governments always see the benefits of new technology as a way out of that problem. Right. Um, on, on energy generation. So again, if fusion can be made to work, that problem goes away which would be a huge, huge bonus. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it is effectively unlimited. I think the, what is actually needed to power Fusion's power station is basically you need two tubs, two bathtubs of seawater and the lithium that you'll find in two laptops. And that will give one person all the energy they will ever need for 60 years. Now you have just said Bolivia's keyword, lithium. Ah. Bolivia does have a lot of lithium. That's very interesting. I didn't know that. So that, that lithium will be, it's one of those rare earth metals that is necessary for fusion to work. That's what you will put in the blanket. So that is the material inside of the chamber that captures the neutrons and the helium. Um, I don't tell me quite why it has to be lithium, but lithium is the best way, I believe, to harness the energy and to keep the reaction, the fusion reaction going. So my GCSE science tells me that lithium... Uh, will create a, a chemical reaction even if you connect it with water, right? So extracting this from under the ground in Bolivia, where su supposedly there's a lot of it there, is a difficult process and probably one that we don't know what to do with at the moment. I mean, 
what would you say? What does Bolivia do? It's got this resource that's possibly going to be very useful for the future, especially if fusion happens. Without wishing to position myself as some kind of national economic advisor, what Bolivia shouldn't do is sell it to the wrong people or treat it or, or, or manage it in a, in a, in a short-termist way. Knowing that lithium is, I mean, it's already really important, right? But knowing that lithium will only get more important, they perhaps need to look at what Norway did to the Norway, Norwegian oil reserves, which is you put a long-term state-owned vehicle into it that owns it, that takes the revenue. So actually, rather than just selling the whole plot of land to China, actually that entity can charge China to extract some lithium. So the, the money goes to Bolivia, not necessarily the owner, uh, so not, not a foreign owner of that land. But that requires the owner so that's that, that organization to be treated by the government with respect and with, with a sense of detachment. It can't be just plundered by the government to meet short-term money uh, needs. So, for example, in the UK, we made a huge mistake on that. So when we discovered oil in the North Sea in the late 60s, as I mentioned, that was just privatized and British companies owned it and the government taxed it. And actually, it was a really effective way for the government to make a lot of money off that, but only for a relatively short period of time. Um, and they used it to cut other taxes. So in the 80s, they were able to cut taxes on, on individuals and you could generate a bit of economic growth that way. But that's not sustainable. Whereas what Norway did was to continue with government business as usual, all the while oil money was going into this little bank account over many, many years. And now they've got loads of it. Saudi Arabia has done the same. And Bolivia should do something like that on lithium. Bolivia still feels um, the wound of having a mountain made out of silver taken out of it. And this was under different conditions. This is under colonial conditions and spread around the world and used to have literally a mountain made out of silver and it was mm. completely plundered. It's interesting. You, you asked to think a, about a question what's going earlier on. on demand, on demand, which actually I, I, I did only half answered. I think it's a very interesting point. And I said on with, with fusion that that problem would go away. However, demand for food, for land, for water, uh, actually, no, water, again, if you've got fusion, you can, you can potentially just build desalination plants. But food and land are huge. Tell us, uh, um, desalination plants, plants that will use ocean water, take the salt out of it and make it into drinking water, right? Correct, correct. And if you've got a strong, clean water system with proper sewerage uh, and, the, and all that infrastructure, then desalination is not a problem. It's not an environmental problem. But it has to be done in that holistic way. Otherwise, it can, it's not great for the water supply if it's not coordinated. Anyway. That's desalination. But on food and land, you know, we, the, the Chinese, for example, are eating far more meat than they, than they used to. And, and as you will know, in South America, um, a lot of the forest has been chopped down to create agricultural land for, for animals or, for, or, or for, to grow crops to feed the animals. Not chopped, um, burned. Well, exactly, burned. Which is worse. <laughs> it's, not only, it's even worse. So <laughs> you, you create pollution while also destroying the forest. And, and obviously that is the rate of, of growth of deforestation to support the rise in meat eating to support uh, new just the sprawl of, of urban development that that is that is not a problem that you can change with technology that's people yeah so it's a ton of problems it's a ton of problems it's how big is your department to tackle this then <laughs> it's, it's big but it's the, the point about people uh, is that actually you know changing people's behaviors doesn't take lots of civil servants it doesn't necessarily take a lot of money but in, it requires government to take big decisions on, on saying, you people, you're not allowed to do this because of X. So on, on a tiny, tiny issue, for example, like smoking, pales in comparison to, say, climate change, although 
you know, far more immediately deadly to a lot of mm-hmm. smokers. You know, a long time ago, it would have been very, very radical for the government to tell people you're not allowed to smoke indoors. But in the UK, you're not allowed to smoke indoors in public places. And when that came in, it was it was quite a big deal, and there was and, and a lot of people thought it was government going too far. And almost within a matter of weeks, everyone just thought, oh no, no, that's really sensible. I was a waiter in a bar when that happened in the UK. Um, so I was about 16, 17 years old. And I remember the smoking ban hitting us and they oh, what's going on? This is crazy. And people complained about it for, I would stretch to maybe a month. Yeah. And then yeah. people just got used to smoking outside. Yeah. We in the UK now have a sugar tax, which increased the costs on, on unhealthy food that have got a lot of sugar in them. And that's designed to change people's behavior. So government can do it if they choose to do so, but it's, you know, that's not technology. It's just people. So it's really interesting. So from the backlash from that, things like stopping people from smoking, stopping people from doing what they naturally want to do, how much immediate backlash? We say like people complain for about a month, but I think people complain for about a month vocally, but they don't necessarily forgive that. I think they they resent silently until a candidate who leans more towards the short-term solutions comes and appeals to them and suddenly they'll vote them in. Yeah, so this is why um, governments need to get real with their electorates and that there are no such things as easy or quick fixes to help people get through these decisions and these changes. That's a sustained communications effort. You need to tell people why again and again and again. Because as you say, then then sooner or later, someone's going to say, actually, no, we don't need to do this. And it's going to be so much better for you. And people want to believe that much more than they want to believe a hard, hard truth. So, you know, the onus is on governments to, to be open and frank and to have the, the, the guts to do that and the energy to do that for a long period of time. Uh, and, and governments historically aren't great at that. No, people feel very, very um, separated from their governments in countries around the world. Yeah, but I think one, one positive thing is, is, again, going back to smoking. In the 50s and 60s, everyone smokes. But 40 years of government-funded campaigns to tell people this is not a good idea and this is really unhealthy broadly has worked and far fewer people do because they know it's really unhealthy. So if government kind of applied the same degree of attention, but obviously at much greater levels for on, on environmental issues, for example, then maybe more change. You've got to hope, right? Yeah. So there are big problems around the world. Not actually, I don't even want to say they're about our future. They're about our present. Um, yeah. It's going on. Um, but I think, and you have a choice really, if you want to despair about them or if you want to, try and find the positives in them and there is i still do believe that every individual can make small differences and those things do add up um yeah i I agree um the things do add up so the way i i see it is it's there there are two big problems individual behavior and social behavior social behavior can be changed by governments if governments choose to do so and individuals can support governments that might do that uh, through political action, through joining or campaigning from a political party. And my own personal kind of regret is that on that side of things, on the social things, I could do more. I could do some voluntary work in the community to, to, to support environmental movements or something like that. But on the personal side, you can make small changes. It's very easy. I don't eat meat during the week. I hardly eat it at the weekend. I occasionally drink real milk, but I try not to. I will always offset my flights. Now, these aren't, these aren't radical things, and I know I could go much further. But again, as you say, if everyone did something, 
then then that's that's the start right yeah absolutely um so ed thank you so much for sharing so much information about about fusion and energy and history and economics uh with us today i've really enjoyed talking to you as always Uh, And I have, Luke, as always. I should add that I am not a trained historian, economist, scientist, or any of these things. I just do this stuff for a day, daily living. This this is your job, and and you're good at it. I I, I do enjoy listening to you. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, hopefully, um, hopefully, Bolivia will heed your heed your words on how it should take care of its lithium supplies for the benefit of the long term, (laughs) rather than the short term. I think that's very always. I've always offered to, I've always longed to offer Bolivia advice on what to do about its lithium, lithium reserves. So I can take that off the bucket list. There you go. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's one thing off the list for today. Thank you, Ed. Um, and I'll see you soon. Bye bye, Luke. Thank you very much. So a lot of food for thought there that may take just a little digesting. My thanks to Ed for sharing his insight with us. If you are interested in English classes for you or someone you know, then get in touch with us. Languageconnection.com.bo is our website to find out more about us and what we do. I hope you're enjoying our mix of conversations because we have more interesting themes coming every week. And our back catalogue is building slowly but surely, so why not take a look at a title that appeals to you and have a listen. Until next time, I'm Luke and this has been the Language Connection Podcast.